Welcome to AEM Early Access, a collaboration between Brown University Emergency Medicine and the editors of the Academic Emergency Medicine Journal. I'm Dr. Gita Pensa, and here's what we've got for you today. There's a lot of data demonstrating that homelessness is associated with negative health outcomes. It's a huge, multifaceted problem that many of us are familiar with, at least on the surface, as we interact regularly with homeless patients, especially in urban settings. In New York City alone, as of 2017, over 60,000 people were homeless, a staggering number. Many of us feel helpless in the face of this societal problem, but the emergency department might actually become a place where we can identify and intervene with patients at risk for homelessness before it actually happens, putting a preventative medicine spin on it. Today, to talk about these possibilities, I'm excited to have Dr. Kelly Doran with us. She's the lead author of a new AEM paper entitled, It Wasn't Just One Thing, a qualitative study of newly homeless emergency department patients. Dr. Doran is an emergency physician and faculty member in the Department of Population Health and the Department of Emergency Medicine at the NYU School of Medicine, who studies how healthcare systems can better address homelessness and other social determinants of health. You can find the full text of this article on our blog at brownemblog.com for a limited time. Welcome, Dr. Kelly Doran, to the podcast. Thank you so much for talking with us today. Thank you so much for having me. So let's first talk about some background on this problem. Now, certainly most emergency physicians have cared for patients who are homeless, but in the larger scale, let's talk about how homelessness or housing instability affects health in general. Yeah. I mean, you're right. This is something that emergency physicians see every day. And homelessness and housing instability has huge effects on people's health. Um, In the U.S., each night, there are more than 500,000 people who are, frankly, homeless. Um, And if you look over the given year, that number is much larger. Um, And homelessness is associated with higher mortality than for people who are housed. So people who are homeless have mortality rates um, if they're unsheltered. So if they're living like on the streets, um, some studies have found mortality rates 10 times higher than the general population. Um, For people who are sheltered, you know, three, four times higher than the general population, especially for people who are what we call chronically homeless. So they've been homeless for long periods of time or on and off for long periods of time. And especially if they're unsheltered, you know, folks tend to live to be in their 50s. So essentially, homelessness is one of the most deadly conditions that we see in the emergency department, but we don't often think about it with the same sort of urgency that we think about something like a heart attack or stroke. And then for housing instability, you know, there have been overall fewer studies on the links between housing instability and health as they're compared to the studies for homelessness and health. But um, still, there have been plenty of studies linking 
all sorts of forms of housing instability with health. I mean, housing instability itself is a big umbrella term, and so it can encompass anything, you know, ranging from poor housing conditions, you know, mold in the house, pests in the house, which have shown strong associations with health conditions such as asthma, um, to, you know, trouble paying your rent or rent burden, which has also been found in studies to be associated with health. So definitely there's like an undeniable link between housing instability, homelessness, and people's health. So how did you come into being interested in doing research in this topic? I mean, so many of us, as I said before, interact with patients who are homeless. What what kind of called you to start looking at this from a research lens? Well, I've actually been doing work related to homelessness for longer than I've been doing work related to medicine. I mm-hmm. first started doing volunteer work with homelessness as an undergrad. I went to Harvard and we have a student-run homeless shelter there. And I started volunteering there once a week, eventually spending one overnight per week there and eventually becoming one of the the directors of that student-run shelter. And then ever since then, I've done, you know, a whole variety of different jobs or volunteer things or whatnot with with homelessness. Um, And actually, the thing that got me into it is really, you know, as an undergrad, having the chance to just talk to people and hear their stories. And once you learn about people's lives and hear about what they're going through, for me, it was pretty hard to to turn away from that. Um, And in fact, you know, I went into emergency medicine in part because emergency departments are where a lot of people who are homeless end up for their health care. And so the interest has sort of predated my work in emergency medicine. And then, you know, I did the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation Clinical Scholars Program, learned how to be a researcher. And, you know, there's this process at the beginning of that of kind of like thinking through, well, what am I going to research? And so, you know, my passion is with homelessness, housing, and other social determinants of health. And I, I went with that and have continued ever since. Sounds like you have a calling. I do. I do. And I, you know, we need more people doing this sort of research, especially within emergency medicine. Uh, There was a systematic review done by uh, Dr. Salhi and and her colleagues uh, fairly recently, about a year or so ago, uh, of uh, research on homelessness and emergency medicine. And, you know, they only found 28 studies. So there's still, you know, much more we don't know about how to best care for this population in the emergency department. Well, I do feel like we are starting finally to pay a little more attention to social determinants of health overall. And so your paper that we're going to talk about today, um, I think is a, is a great start to that. So let's talk about your paper. How, how might the emergency department fit into potential solutions? Like what was known about the role of the ED and identifying patients at risk for homelessness before your paper, anything? Mm -hmm. Well, we know from the past research, uh, primarily that people who are homeless uh, tend to, on average, use emergency departments more than people who aren't homeless. Um, We know from prior studies um, that have been summarized both in uh, Dr. Salhi's systematic review and also in a systematic review I had done with um, some folks that were med students at the time but are now residents. Patrick Malika is the first author. We did a systematic review of emergency department 
and social need research. And so we know from both of those systematic reviews that there have been several studies finding that when you look across emergency departments, you know, including even emergency departments not in major urban cities, um, prevalence rates of homelessness amongst our patients are quite high. Um, there have been fewer studies looking at housing instability short of frank homelessness amongst emergency department uh, patients, but those few studies that have looked at that have also found overall high prevalence rates um, among emergency department patients of housing instability. So the main thing that we know is that our patients quite often face these problems. What we don't know as much and where there there hasn't really been a lot of research is then what are the best ways to to deal with that? What are the best practices? Um, Nobody has really done a study yet of, you know, how can we best care for people who are homeless? What sorts of interventions um, can we provide for them to help them with their housing situation? Or even, you know, what sorts of things can we do to help them with their health? Um, there's still so much that, that we don't know. And so this, this study starts to fill some of those gaps, but we need a lot more research. So let's talk about this study in particular. What in particular were you setting out to find? How did you set your study up? This study is part of a larger body of research that I'm doing that's related to homelessness prevention. Um, this is through a primarily through a career development award from, from NIH NIDA um, that's looking at predicting future homelessness amongst emergency department patients and preventing it. And so um, the qualitative research was one aim of that larger overall research. Um, I should mention that we also got funding from United Hospital Fund. I'd be remiss not to mention that. Um, But we've been um, trying to figure out, A, through more quantitative work and some some linked data analysis with our city shelter records, we've been trying to figure out, you know, can we predict future homelessness uh, amongst emergency department patients who aren't already homeless? And can we develop some sort of screening tool for future homelessness risk? And then the next step of that is to try to figure out, so what what do we do about it? And to figure out potential future interventions, we had to know more, you know, from people who were actually experiencing homelessness or recent homelessness about sort of what their pathways were to homelessness. Um, And we also did the qualitative research in part, and this isn't covered in this particular publication, but um, the qualitative study also um, tried to get people's kind of opinions and thoughts on potential emergency department screening for housing instability and interventions that might help people to avoid homelessness. So the qualitative research study overall had multiple goals. This paper is on one of those goals, which was to understand more about kind of people's pathways into homelessness. So um, just describe your methods in in particular. So we did uh, one-on-one in-depth interviews with emergency department patients who had recently become homeless. Mm -hmm. We define that as people who had become homeless either, you know, in the streets or in the shelter within the past six months. Um, We thought that that was a pretty good time frame for when people should, you know, be able to remember kind of the circumstances under which they they became homeless. 
Um, about, you know, about two thirds of the people in our study had had prior experiences of homelessness. So we, you know, in the past, and so we didn't restrict our study to only people who were homeless for the first time, but we did restrict it to people who were having some new episode of homelessness. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, we we found people in two different ways that I'll mention just because it was interesting. You know, we, we asked our our providers, our emergency department providers, to essentially help us find people um, who had recently entered homelessness um, that we might be able to enroll in our study. And what we found was that this was this was hard. So our providers tend to recognize homelessness when somebody, you know, has been chronically homeless and they might look stereotypically homeless. They have, you know, bags with them, you know, they you know, they, they've obviously been homeless a long time. Um, mm. But our providers don't ask uniformly about people's housing status or their homelessness status. And this is, you know, pretty much true. This isn't just my emergency department. This is emergency departments throughout the country. And so what ends up happening is a lot of people who are homeless, um, they don't, or who are experiencing homelessness, they don't quote unquote look homeless. Um, And so a provider might not even know about it if they don't ask. And most providers don't ask. And so we found that 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 method of, um, of, of trying to recruit patients for our study by like asking providers to alert us when somebody um, was having a new experience of homelessness. That took a long time. <laughs> we ended up, I think we were doing enrollment for this study. It's in the paper, but you know, somewhat over a year. Hmm. We also did do some kind of more systematic screening in the emergency department, looking for patients who were potentially eligible for the study. So I just wanted to mention that because it's an interesting point just about um, just, just a demonstration of the fact that often Oftentimes, our providers don't even know um, when the patient in front of them is experiencing homelessness. So at any rate, going back to the methods, we did in-depth one-on-one interviews um, in the emergency department with people. We've, we followed pretty standard uh, best practices for qualitative research. Um, one of the um, authors on the paper, Deborah Paget, is like a well-known qualitative methodologist. Um, and so she you know, helped guide us with the methods. Um, the interviews were conducted by um, either myself or Donna Castelblanco, who's another author um, on the paper. And we followed um, a semi-structured interview guide, which is also fairly typical for qualitative research, you know, where we had questions that we wanted to ask people and pros for those questions. But we also did allow for the conversation to be guided in part by the participant themselves and to kind of allow like new topics to, to come up as they might. We digitally recorded the interviews. We used a professional transcription service. You know, we checked all of the transcripts to make sure that they were perfect. And then um, we did a process where we did individual coding. There were three of us who were involved in the coding, and we would code interviews individually and then meet um, together in a group to discuss um, kind of groups of two to three interviews. And then, you know, what you do is you you come up with with codes as you're going. We did kind of line-by-line coding of the interviews and, um, you know, discussing and refining our code structure as we went. And, you know, eventually those codes become themes. This is like distilling a a very long process into a a 10 second summary, but you know, the codes become themes and, and that's the study. So you identified four major themes from these interviews. Um, And let's, let's go through them one by one. And maybe you can tell us, you know, give us an example of of a patient story that might exemplify this. So in this study, we found four major themes. 
The first was that people each had their unique stories um, about their pathways to homelessness, but there were common social and health contributors to homelessness that came up you know, over and over again. The second theme that we found um, was one that we called personal agency versus larger structural forces. Um, that the terminology is a bit wonky. Essentially, what that that meant was that you know people would would often tell us like, oh, well, this is my fault, or I did this to myself. Um, yet at the same time, their stories were kind of full of um, you know big structural issues over which they themselves wouldn't necessarily have much um, influence. So things like you, the lack of affordable housing in a city or the lack of well-paying jobs in a city. And so there was kind of this tension between um, those structural issues and this narrative of personal agency. The third major theme we found um, was what we called limitations in help from family and friends. And basically that was um, we found that most people did have family and friends, um, but there were limitations. Uh, one limitation is that people often experience deaths of their family and friends, and so you know that obviously limited the amount of social connections we had. But even for people with living family and friends. Um, you know, oftentimes they would get some amount of support from them, um, but, you know, the support would only go so far. And um, that took a a few different flavors. One of the common flavors was that family themselves, you know, were not necessarily very well off. And so, you know, people would say things like, you know, they're paying, they're, they're trying to pay for their own rent or they're trying to feed their own kids. And so, you know, they can't really help me. Um, and another flavor, though, that that took was sometimes there were family disagreements or, you know, people had sort of burnt their bridges or the family, people felt like their family just didn't, you know, was going to help them to a certain point, um, but not beyond that point. And then the last flavor of that was just people who, and this was kind of sad, but people who just didn't really want to like bother their family. They didn't want to be a burden on their family, um, you know, including, you know, people who had grown kids and like they didn't, they just didn't want to burden their family with that. And then the last, the last theme, the fourth theme that we found, um, which is particularly important in terms of thinking through potential emergency department based interventions is that homelessness wasn't expected. And this one was a surprise to us. Um, We had one of the goals of our study was actually to ask people like, you know, what might have prevented your homelessness? And people had a lot of trouble even kind of even like conceptualizing the idea that something could have prevented their homelessness. Um, They would often say things like, well, like it just happens or, you know, it just it happened so fast. It could happen to anyone. This just happened to me. Um, People would say things like, you know, I've lived a good life and then, you know, this And that was interesting because, um, well, first of all, two-thirds had been homeless in the past, so this wasn't really a a new thing for a lot of them. And then also when you hear their stories as an external observer, um, you would hear all sorts of like red flags for homelessness, you know, family discord, they lost a job, um, their health was bad, uh, their landlord was going to kick them out, like all of these things. And so from an external point of view, you were like, well, gee, like, yeah, of course, it really seems like you were going to become homeless. Um, but over and over, people just like told us that they, they it kind of caught them by surprise. Um, and that to us has important implications in terms of thinking through, you know, interventions and the, the need to kind of do screening to try to help identify people who are at risk and provide them with services. So if we can develop tools to identify patients who are at risk, I mean, then then what? Like, how how do we help? 
Yeah, so uh, what we're trying to do in our research now is we're actually doing a pilot study of a homelessness prevention intervention for emergency department patients um, who we do identify as being at risk for future homelessness. Um, So in our pilot study, we're connecting patients with existing New York City homelessness prevention um, services. In New York City, that program is called Home Base, which is a a program that has actually been studied in a randomized control trial and found to be effective overall. And so, you know, we're working in our pilot study to try to refer people to home base and get them to go and and receive the services there. Um, Homelessness prevention services in general um, tend to run the gamut um, depending on people's individual needs. And so, you know, in New York City, home base will, you know, help people with their evictions, you know, in court if that's the issue. They'll help people with landlord-tenant mediation or family mediation. They'll help people pay back rent if that's what they need. They'll help people get benefits. Um, And, you know, similar sorts of programs exist throughout the U.S. And so, you know, for emergency physicians uh, or emergency departments, I think most important is to have strong connections um, in your community with the types of services that could help people in this situation. Assuming that you're identifying them, the first step, like you mentioned, is that, you know, in order to know who to send to services, we need to know who's who's at risk. And um, that means that we need to be asking people more about their housing and, and screening for housing instability and homelessness. So you mentioned some other research that you're doing. What what do you think needs to come next in this in this area? Yeah, I think that we need a lot more research. But I also think that, you know, we're ready for some practice changes. I think that um, right now, well, first of all, like the very basics are that I would like to see us provide, you know, care in the emergency department for people who are homeless, who um, that is free of stigma um, and that's equal to the health care that we provide to other people. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that, you know, we are ready to say that that emergency providers on a patient to patient level should be, you know, asking people about their housing status because it is so important to their health. You know, even just um, in terms of your treatment and your disposition decisions, a lot of that can be influenced by somebody's housing status. And so knowing about that is important. Um, And then, you know, thinking down the road, you know, what sorts of larger, more universal screening efforts might there be? Um, For example, in the VA healthcare system, they have a universal homeless screening clinical reminder, um, not in the emergency departments, but in their clinics where people are asked two questions about um, how essentially about housing instability and about frank homelessness. And then they're automatically linked to services as a result um, Mm. based on their answers to those questions. And so, you know, we know that emergency departments are essentially the the door to the healthcare system um, where we're most likely to see people who are homeless. And so, you know, I think that we in the emergency department really do have an important role to play um, in terms of screening for homelessness, screening for housing instability, and trying to do what we can to address those issues, which doesn't necessarily mean, you know, that every emergency department is going to like have its own affordable housing development that they can refer people to, but it could mean, you know, connecting with others in the community um, or even for emergency physicians being an advocate, being being a voice to kind of witness what we see in terms of the health effects of um, housing instability and homelessness and trying to advocate for um, policies that will create more affordable housing and more, um, you know, help to, to reduce homelessness in the U.S. 
Well, thank you so much for being with us today and thank you for your work. I think it's very important. Thank you so much for having me and uh, letting me share some of this research. Thanks for listening to this month's AEM Early Access Podcast. You can find all our podcasts on iTunes. Search for AEM Early Access, all one word. The full text of this article is available on our blog for a limited time at brownemblog.com. Today's music is by Scott Holmes. I'm Dr. Gita Pensa, and we'll see you next time.